0: This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's paw pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry is the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag, so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket portfolios is kinda like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risks, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Oh, hey, it's your coworker who has an umbrella in her trunk, but remembers it halfway between the car and the office door, Allie Ward, back with a bunch of tasty facts in a broth of history. Let's dig into this episode about Black American cuisine, from origin stories to pop cultural critiques, with this guest who completed undergrad at the University of Virginia, got an M.A. and a Ph.D. in American Studies from the University of Maryland College Park, where they are now a professor and the department chair in the Department of American Studies. They've authored several books, including the new Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, and 2006's Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food and Power and we're so lucky she made time to chat but before we get into it quick thanks to everyone who submitted questions via patreon.com ologies and everyone who supports the show just by telling others about it and by rating and leaving reviews which truly helps so much they mean so much and as proof i read them all so big congrats to okay this is me who wrote in that the field trip colonoscopy ride-along saved their butt and said thank you for sharing your journey and probably saved my life so i read all the reviews thank you so much Really, onto the episode. So Black American Macrology comes from the Greek, megriros, for cooking. And it means the art, science, or study of cooking. And this guest is an expert in mass media meets nutrition science, the culture of food, how we talk about it, especially distorted and race-based racist notions, we chatted about the writing that inspired her, Southern cooking versus soul food, tropes of Black women in cinema, historical origins of some foods, if there's a correct type of mac and cheese, and why someone would make chicken without seasoning it. On national television, with scholar, cultural historian, author of Eating While Black, and, for the sake of this episode, Black American magurologist, Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson.
1: Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson, she, her.
0: You've got a great name, by the way. Thank you very much. When you set out to start studying this field, did you always have your sights set on a PhD or did it start just unraveling and your interest got deeper and deeper?
1: Yeah. You know, I actually did not want to go into education at all. I resisted it with with, a full (laughs) force. I come from a family of educators. And before I went off to college, my mom was like, oh, make sure you take some education courses. And I was like, yeah, no, I won't be doing that. I don't want to be a teacher. Because in my mind, though my dad had been an adjunct for many years at the University of Buffalo, I wasn't fully immersed in the college professor, professoriate, or any of that. So I went to University of Virginia and studied English because that really was talk about reading. That's my, my passion is reading. So I came to graduate school really to study Black women's literature, but within context, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? I felt like what I had studied in undergrad did not provide enough context to the reading. We just studied, you know, the mechanics of books and all that kind of stuff. So when I saw That there was actually a field dedicated to it. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really interested in that. So I came to graduate school as a master's student to the University of Maryland, interested in reading Black women's literature. And at that time, a series had just been published by Oxford University Press with the New York Public Library and Henry Louis Gates. And it was the reclamation, if you will, of a number of 19th century Black women's texts. Mm. Wow! Yeah, they had been recovered and rewritten and republished, some in the original text font and all of that. So they were amazing. Yeah, amazing books.
0: That must have just felt like finding a diary or finding it like the feeling you get when you find a note in your locker, but you just can't (laughs) open it fast enough. That must have just (laughs) been a thrill for you.
1: It was totally new for me. You know, Zora Neale Hurston's work had just been uncovered by Alice Walker about a decade and a half earlier
0: quick side note on that. So if you're not familiar with the work of Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., he's a historian, a professor at the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. He's a filmmaker with multiple Emmys for work like The African American's Many Rivers to Cross. And he has written literally dozens of books on Black American history and present. And he hosts the PBS show Finding Your Roots. What a dude and author Zora Neale Hurston. So she wrote several books, including the 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And that is set in Florida. It touches on themes of sexual awakening and multi-generational trauma from enslavement. And despite Zora Neale Hurston's talent and hard work, such a figure in the literary world and publishing more books than any other Black woman in the country, she was paid very little she died in poverty. Now, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture is within the New York Public Library System, and it's a research library. It's located on Malcolm X Boulevard in Harlem in New York. And in the late 80s, Dr. Henry Louis Gates edited a collection of over 40 works. They included poetry and memoirs and novels and testimonies of enslaved people. And it was released in a big compendium. It was called the Schomburg Library of 19th Century Black Women Writers. And a decade later, as technology marched on, those works became available as the digital Schomburg African-American women writers of the 19th century. And I'll link that on our website for you to peruse. But Dr. Williams-Forson dove into those texts.
1: And I was really in love with Alice Walker and The Color Purple, and, but she also had like several other books, right? Revolutionary Petunias and all these different texts, right? So I was reading all this stuff. And so that really started me on the path to what I'm really trained in, which is the study of the material world or material culture, mm-hmm. right? So I'm really interested in how people interact with objects, right? and things what do things mean in our lives how i came to food was because in one of those novels the author took a lot of care to give us details about the domestic interiors of a black boarding house oh wow and i was just fascinated you know because i didn't know a lot about boarding houses and at the time I was reading this, I was like, huh. So she's referencing
0: the novel Contending
1: Forces, which came
0: out in 1900. It was written by Boston-based author and editor of one of the first magazines for Black American culture and arts. And her name was Pauline Hopkins. So that's
1: what was really exciting to me. But she spends a lot of time on a a couple of different meals in the book. So my Curiosity was peaked there. But then I did research for a Jewish historian who was studying foodways. Mm-hmm. And I said, hmm, never heard of this word before. I <laughs> wonder if Black people have foodways. Do we have any? And so, you know, this was before the uh, the Google age. This was more just Internet. So I went online and looked it up. And I said, hmm, what I started seeing were a lot of cookbooks, uh-huh. Black cookbooks, Black authored and, and books that said, hey, you know, this is what black folks eat. And I said, okay, but why these foods? And so that really is what started me down this path, right? I, was, I wanted to know how we understood black food culture within the context of material culture. Mm-hmm. So what do foods mean to people? Why do certain foods mean certain things? So how do people use food to manipulate situations, right? So I was still a graduate student. And the field of food studies had already been in existence, mostly coming out of anthropology and folklore, but there wasn't a lot being written about in those circles about Black food culture. Or what was being written about had to do with enslavement. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, but what about people who weren't enslaved? There were free Blacks. So I started this area of study. And at that time, food studies was considered by the Chronicle of Higher Education Scholarship Light. What? The thing that we have to do every
0: single day to stay alive and that so much of our economy and transportation system and
1: history and culture is based on? Really? Based on all of that. Yeah. They said it's scholarship light. If people (gasps) are talking about food and culture and and, you know, they were thinking about it, I think, from a home ec point of view.
0: Yeah, of course, because de- right? they gendered it. But uh, They gendered it. Right? Every archaeological site, the, what do they talk about? They talk about what they were eating. They talk about what they cooked and They talked about how they cooked it, the bones that they found.
1: What? And that's But that's the thing, right? It was mostly coming out of disciplines that weren't, well, public, that mm-hmm. weren't public, Right archaeology, anthropology, no one was really reading that, but other anthropologists and archaeologists, sociologists yeah. and so forth.
0: I'm sorry, I found this bonkers, like so much is bonkers. I was not alone.
1: Well, food studies took offense, obviously, and went, Rah! and so in the <laughs> next 10 to 20 years, because this was in the early 90s, so the next couple of decades, you started getting all kinds of work published. Mm-hmm. Oh, Okay, I'm less mad now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what? Then what started happening in the last decade or so? Almost every discipline and and folks in popular spaces started talking about food. Mm-hmm. Then we had cooking shows, but they weren't the traditional sort of Julia Child cooking shows, right? We started getting Top Chef, you know, Kitchen Makeover, and all of these kinds of things. So there's a competitive edge. Your time starts now. And there's a, a an edge that shows. Different types of chefs and cooking styles and different foods are being introduced and now you've got kids cooking. So really the, the field of food studies has just exploded now more than ever and gone is the sort of June Cleaver perception and you're starting to see all these other avenues. So right around 99, a colleague of mine came out with the book, Black Hunger, uh, Doris Witt and uh, she was looking at literature and issues of, of power and so forth through that. But then I came out with my first book, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power, mm-hmm. which really looked at the ways in which Black folks had been historically associated with chicken and foods like watermelon. But to reverse that conversation, not from uh, from a stereotypical point of view, but to look at the ways in which Black women in particular use food to wield and yield power. How did we become entrepreneurs and purveyors of our own destinies? How did we self-define with food? How, how did we not just become entrepreneurial, but prepare children through school, build houses, you know, burn church mortgages, all of that kind of thing?
0: And again, that 2006 book is called Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food and Power. And it examines things like black women and gender malpractice with chapter titles like the compelling Taking the Big Piece of Chicken. And just a side note, I recall in college talking about motherhood with two of my best girlfriends, and one of them saying that she was scared to be a mom because that meant she'd never get the best piece of chicken again. And she has two kids now. They're lovely twins. But every time I make chicken, I think about that. I think about taking the big piece of chicken. But yes, Dr. Williams Forsen followed up on her 2006 Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs by co-editing a 650-page collection of work called Taking Food Public, Redefining Food Ways in a Changing World, alongside Millersville University Professor of Anthropology and Women's Studies, Carol
1: Cunningham hand. Because as she explains, that's when we started to see another explosion, right? A farmer's market and eat local and eat organic and all of that kind of those mantras coming into the, into the forefront. Changes were happening, for example, in dollar stores. Walmart started selling food and Target started selling food and then EBT started being offered. So I was around 2010, working on a piece on uh, eating from the Dollar Tree. Mm -hmm. And it was widely unpopular. And folks was like, well, the food is, you know, expired. And I was like, yeah, no, not really. Yeah, that's illegal probably to sell (laughs) expired (laughs) (laughs)
2: food. It's a violation of FDA stuff.
1: I was like, yeah, But, but at a time when there are so many food options, why are we not recognizing food options that would help people who are food insecure Mm -hmm. become more secure? Yeah, And I mean, everyone from the elderly in particular elderly women to those who are of means to those who are not of means, why aren't we expanding how we're talking about alternative food beyond farmers markets and, and so forth, Mm -hmm. right? Why aren't we having a broader conversation? So that's really part of what led me to Eating While Black because I started with that article, but I also started to see a lot of moralizing around I eat clean and I eat healthy and I'm this label or I'm that label, I'm this label, this, it makes me a good person. Mm -hmm. That was the presumption. And that was the sort of subtext. Yeah. As if food can't save you. And at the same time that I saw that level of moralizing going on, I saw a lot of demonizing of black food culture, right? Yeah. Soul food is bad, you know, soul food which is (laughs) the same foods that are eaten in the South more broadly. More on soul food later.
0: But in her first book, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Doctor Williams Forson has a chapter called Still Dying for Soul Food. And it takes a critical look at the 1997 film called Soul Food, which centers around a grandmother character who cooks Sunday dinners for her family, but, spoiler alert, dies of complications from diabetes, and the family's got to figure out what to do without her. And uh, Dr. Williams-Forsen writes about this contradiction of these seemingly strong Black women characters who actually, as they're written, come off as weak and unable to care for themselves, or represent these gender tropes via a massive pop-cultural hit of a movie. But Dr. Williams-Forsen points out that incidents of white supremacy around Black people's food started to appear on the smaller screens in real life captured by
1: the phones in our pockets. For example, in Oakland, when the Black family was at the park and this woman found the need to call the police to say, hey, there are people barbecuing in the park. Uh, it's illegal to have a charcoal grill in the park here. No, it's not actually. I just yeah, looked at the it map. Is. It says this is a designated barbecue area. No, if you not for a
0: charcoal grill. No charcoal grills are allowed. Do you want to see it? What year did that Did you see that start to escalate?
1: I started seeing it escalate around 2012, 13, 14, somewhere around there. Yeah. And then it, and then it became it became like a domino effect because right after that the barbecue Becky, if you will. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget 2018s. Permit Patty.
0: It's like the worst Barbie characters ever.
1: This woman don't want to let a little
0: girl sell some water. She calling police on an eight-year-old little girl. You can hide all you want. The whole world gonna see you, boo. Yeah, and um, illegally selling water without a
1: permit? Then there was the incident of the black man in Starbucks who was arrested in Philadelphia for sitting in Starbucks waiting for his friends. You know, he was waiting for his friends to order.
2: What did they get called for? Because there are two black guys sitting here meeting me? Yes, I Well, what did they
1: do? What did they do? Did someone told me what they did? They didn't do anything. I saw the entire thing. And so I was like, oh, wow. And then Damien Young, who used to write for a public journal, had a picture of President Obama eating a, a chicken wing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said, you know, among the list of things that black people do while black is eating.
2: Mm-hmm. You know?
1: And so he was like, so eating while black is a thing. And so that's really where I took my title
0: from. So in her book, she cites a 2014 blog post titled, Perfectly Normal Things Black Men Just Know Not To Do Because America Is Racist As Fuck. And this listicle includes things like jogging at night and getting angry at work, or helping any random white woman in public. And she notes that number eight on the list is eat chicken and or watermelon at office potlucks or barbecues. And Damon Young wrote, which sucks because everyone loves watermelon. And there's nothing worse than loving watermelon, but feeling a certain way about showing your love of watermelon because you know everyone assumes you love watermelon, which sucks because all caps. Everyone loves watermelon. And Young makes the point. We're all aware of the potential criminality if caught driving while black and shopping while black and walking while black and walking with your hands in your pockets while black and waiting for a bus while black and sitting while black and eating while black and tipping while black. And well, you get the point, he concludes. So she named her book Eating While Black. When you're looking at black food culture in America. How do you account for these huge differences geographically and between rural and urban centers and the diaspora coming from so many different food and culinary backgrounds? How do you approach that from an academic lens?
1: Yeah, you know, when you get to the United States, which has its own very complicated histories of white supremacy, of black racism, and all kinds of denigration of black folks, we're all black doesn't matter where you're from throughout the diaspora, right? Because as I talk about this in the first book, we're judged by phenotype, right? So do you look black? In other words, is your skin brown? You know, does your nose look a certain way? Is your hair appearing to be coarse and thick? So, you know, it's the reduction of of whole identities to categories of race, which of course the census does and so forth. So I'm always Mm -hmm. amazed by people who are like, why are you making everything about race? Uh, because we live in a country that makes everything <laughs> yeah. about race, including the food that we eat. Mm-hmm. And again, what I show in the first book in Building Houses is that, you know, you had legal statutes dating back to the 16 and 1700s that said, do not truck and trade with Negroes or the coloreds or, you know, the natives because more than likely the foods have been stolen. So now you have what a colleague... Um, Alan Lichtenstein calls the disposition toward theft. There's this narrative that Black people were naturally thieves Mm. that came up as early as four or five centuries ago, which still affects us today, Uh right? And then there's this narrative that has taken hold called, you know, all Black folks ate scraps. And for many, many years, I grew up, thinking that too, that all of our food culture derived from scraps. And of course, we know that is like inconceivably untrue because you had different folks who were brought to this country by way of enslavement from different regions in the African continent. And some of us were Muslims, some of us were natural vegetarians, some of us had a predilection toward other kinds of food, seafood and whatnot. And so it makes it seem as if Black folks came here and just had no means of survival whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? Because we only survived off of what was given to us. right? Well, that's wholly untrue. Um, I was just reading a source today that said at one point, the colonial era, that the climate affected the waterways in such a way that hundreds and thousands of lobster and crab washed ashore so much of it that they threw it to the pigs, right? And so it was considered a cheap food because it was so plentiful. I found in my research that Black folks had access to pigeon and quail and just all, I mean, because remember, you know, sometimes I think when we're talking about these things, people only have the vision of today. right? They have no concept of what it was like three centuries ago before we had buildings and roads. Mm-hmm. So if you're surrounded by waterways and foliage, and you are brought to this country as an enslaved person forcefully, but you have to survive and you have agricultural knowledge. You can't tell me that Africans in this country did not say, Hey, I know that that is an edible berry. I know that I can eat those weeds. I know that I can cook that, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. For
0: more on foraging and race, you can see the episode Foraging Ecology with the amazing Alexis Nelson, a.k.a. Black Forager, who, by the way, just launched a series called Crash Course Botany on PBS, so I'll link that on our website as well. And we also have an episode with the kitchens chef, the wonderful Mariah Gladstone, about indigenous colonology.
1: We may not have told those who were enslaving us how we were surviving, but we certainly were able when we wanted to, to survive. And so, you know, these histories of reducing Black people to chicken and and watermelon are convenient tropes that remain today. There was a restaurant by the name, for example, of the Coon Chicken Inn. Which was in existence in the early twentieth century out in the Midwest, and the symbol for the Coon Chicken Inn was a large black face with big <sighs> lips, red lips, and a you know a hat off to the side. It was the Sambo image, right? Mm-hmm. And for those who will remember for a long time, we there was a a, a restaurant called Sambo's. Wow! Yeah, in this country. That word
0: that rhymes with Rambo was used as a slur and a derogatory character for hundreds of years, and there were over a thousand of those restaurants in 47 states up until the last one in well 2020, when after the rise of Black Lives Matter protests, the last remaining restaurant by that name changed it to Chad's. Where was, was this? Like in Mississippi? Where was this? Nope, it was in Santa Barbara, California where I went to college.
1: Gross. When President Obama won the election the first time, Mm -hmm. um, some of you may recall that on the South Lawn, there was a a postcard circulating with watermelons being grown on the South Lawn. So these really negative images have a long history and they come out of popular culture, sheet music, greeting cards, all kinds of ephemera that we now have that show that these things literally circulated through people's travels and so forth. Painting Black folks as less than human. I'm wondering, when
0: did Southern food start to sort of get recognized as a type of American cuisine? And this is also a not smart question, but... You are an expert in this, so I feel okay asking, but the difference between soul food and Southern food. Southern food, right. And, um, Black American cuisine. Where are some of those lines drawn? I feel like so much of what we consider Black American cuisine is things like greens and mac and cheese and things that maybe folks in the South might eat on New Year's. Black eyed peas. I didn't know about black eyed peas until, (laughs) but yeah, what's the, where's the distinction?
1: Yeah, the beautiful thing is that there are a lot more resources today that that open up our understanding of these different foods. Because the majority of Black people in this country came to inhabit the country by way of the South, even though there was enslavement in the North, (laughs) we were enslaved for the longest amount of time in the South. Where the seasons are very uh, tropical in many ways, and, and so lots of plentiful types of foods grow there. What was eaten by white people was often also eaten by black folks, you know, especially when we could get a hold of it. And when we couldn't, we did different things to get access to these foods. So, soul food and southern food are very similar, mm-hmm. right? Corn, butter beans, tomatoes onions, you know, you name it, pigeon peas, things of that nature. Where soul food comes into play, because if you recall, Southern food was okay when Paula Dean was talking about it, right?
0: It's all about butter. And I mean hunks and hunks of butter.
1: Oh, you got to use fresh butter. You got to use fresh cream. You got all of that. And nobody was really saying Emerald Agracia nobody was saying oh my god that food is unhealthy
2: yeah
1: the moment they fell out off the radar for various reasons then it became these foods are just totally unhealthy for me yeah but we're eating the same food but soul food itself is actually a political concept Leroy Jones or Mary Baraka was a beatnik poet in the era of the late 60s and 70s and he was responding to a black journalist and said you know who said black folks have no culture and Leroy Jones said, oh, of course we do
0: mm-hmm.
1: We have soul music We have in our dress, in our speech In our different way, in our food And these are the foods that he listed Right, so Everything from vegetables to Various um, pork chops Fried chicken, you know, all that kind of thing Chitlins, and then he, you know, Sweet tea, cake And so That's actually a, a really sort of More an earlier Concept, it's not, it's only about less than 100 years old, really, the concept of soul food, that is. But prior to that, it was just food that Black people were eating and cooking. Mm-hmm. But because of its political meaning, it, it became necessary to make the point that we do have a culture. And as the late Verna May Grosvenor said, we cook by vibration. It's how mm-hmm. we season our food, right? And, and you'll find many Southerners who season food the same way, but overwhelmingly, the majority of Black folks are prone to seasoning food heavily, Mm -hmm. partly because we needed to preserve it, but also for taste. And again, many of us coming from the African continent, most of us, or either from the Caribbean, where spices were used plentifully, that's just the way that we cook and we do it with a rhythm, with an ear and an eye toward smell, taste, what it feels like, right? And so that's really where you begin to see the differences and the similarities. Now, having said that, region plays an important part. And why do I say that? Because, for example, Miss Leah Chase, Chef Leah Chase, who, you know, is the proprietor and owner of Dookie Chase's in
0: New Orleans. So Chef Chase opened her restaurant, Dookie Chase, in 1941, and it's bright mustard yellow and Cayenne red-colored walls are filled with African-American art, and it also served as a gathering place for some key figures in the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. And Chef Chase was honored with a long list of culinary awards in her career, and she passed away in 2019 at the age of 96. She was known as the Queen of Creole Cuisine.
1: I remember she told me one time, we don't cook soul food, we cook Creole soul in New Orleans, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you've got jambalaya, you've got, of course, gumbo, you've got etouffee, you have, you know, a different type of soul going on. So, it's important to know that there are regional variations
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that do exist. You can go to Chicago right now and say, I want fried catfish, and you're going to probably be met with folks who are like, you want some spaghetti on the side and coleslaw. Mm -hmm. That's a combination that came to Chicago by way of Mississippi. Ah. So you have various migratory strands of people going in different places. Not all of us went north. Some of us went west. Some went Midwest. And many of us went north. And we took those food cultures with us. Mm -hmm. And so black food culture is pervasive. And it's very much a part of American culture. As, as my former administrative assistant told me one time, macaroni and cheese is not a black food. It's a casserole. I said, you're right. But when you put it in combination with collard greens and fried chicken or fried fish, that's what makes it a black dish, if you will, or or a dish that's more prone to be eaten by black people mm-hmm. or people who have a Southern sensibility.
0: And, you know, when you're talking about that mosaic almost of when you put those items together, it completes a puzzle of a certain culture. And Mm -hmm. do you think that there's an attachment emotionally to the safety of that, of knowing when this is what your plate looks like, you're in kind of good company or you're in a space that is safer or more welcoming?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, every culture has their comfort food is uh, my mentor, Verna Mae said Every culture has their get down food. Uh You know, (laughs) they have those foods that are just so familiar that you know you're at home. I can guarantee you if you go to pretty much any black space that's inhabited by black people and you see fried fish and fried chicken, you're going to be like, yep, Mm -hmm. I'm looking (laughs) for the mac and cheese. I'm looking (laughs) for the cauliflower. I'm looking for the cornbread. Now, do I want my cornbread sweetened or do I not want it sweetened? That's going to be a huge regional variation, Mm -hmm. right? Because some folks use a jiffy mix. Some people like, oh no, cornbread has to be straight Uh out. You know, white. (laughs) It has to be made for white corn flour or what have you.
0: And the best thing about talking to experts is finding out that cornbread is a hotbed for all kinds of gossip and historical context. So white cornmeal tends to be sweeter than yellow. But yellow corn is cheaper. So rich folks had finer white cornmeal that was naturally sweet, but yellow corn, which was usually harvested early before those starches turned to sugars, would get a boost of sugar added for sweetness. And Jiffy Mix, turns out, which was always my favorite, was the cheapest and therefore the sweetest. It had the most added sugar. But why did sweetness even matter? So culinary historian Michael W. Twitty has explained that, quote, going back further than emancipation, no breads made with cornmeal were sweet no matter who was making them. It originated with British colonists who adapted their baking to use meal ground from white corn, but it wasn't sweet. So cornbread, it is never just about the yum-yums or a vehicle for butter. It's about history and class and race and oppression, the industrial revolution, and how people judge each other.
1: So, I mean, it's it's a fun thing to unpack But I know I can go to any city and if I hear certain foods, I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm trying to go because I know who I'm going to see and probably who's cooking. Well, you know,
0: from a historical and anthropological perspective, so many European nations colonized other areas under the guise of looking for spices. Mm -hmm. Why are white people so afraid to season their food? we can't flavor for shit. What's up with that? <laughs> How does someone go on Oprah with an award-winning chicken recipe and no salt or pepper? Do you remember this clip? Yes. Tell me yes, you remember this clip. Yes. yes I yes. first saw this clip because I, I saw it on a Reddit board titled, Watch mm-hmm. Someone Die Inside.
2: <laughs> Do you like it? I hope so. <laughs> Just say yes. No, uh, no. I I I do like it. I like it very much. I think did we add salt and pepper? I think we needed salt and pepper. No, there's no salt and pepper in it.
0: (sighs) Culturally what's happening?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think that you may co opt a thing, but you know, you may not use it in a way that is constructive. So yeah, I'm gonna co (laughs) opt we're gonna co opt the spices for the money, but I I don't I can't tell you how to use it. <sighs> what do I do when I ground cloves and and different, you know, turmeric and and tamarind and different spices and habanero pepper and create a jerk seasoning? Oh no, I'm not going to use that. This it's experimental. This is what I think. Verna girls Grosner meant when who was culinary um, historian and anthropologist when she said we cook by vibration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're not necessarily measuring. Like, We're going to see how this going to turn out. Let's see. And I want to be careful because experimentation with food tends to fall under the category of those who have and can afford to be experimental. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to spices, we'll do all kinds of stuff. We'll use orange juice along with those things. We may put stuff in vinegar because partly we had to be inventive. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we're not afraid to invent. Right. Even on the slave ships that that we were brought on, we use certain spices and and whatnot to preserve foods, to prevent scurvy or to prevent the foods from going bad. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've always come from a culture of innovation. We riff, Mm -hmm. we improvise. That's what black people do. Right. We can watch you dance and then we're like, okay, I can do that. And then you go one step further and we see it in music. We see it in our hair. We see it in our our clothing oh yeah, I'm just going to take this thing and tie it around my back and now I'm carrying my child on my back because I don't need a stroller. I can just tie them around my back. That's the beauty of being Black and that's the beautiful part of being free to be, literally, free to be, but also to be expressive. Mm -hmm. We don't have those fears about being expressive. And I think that freedom of expression is not just in those other material ways in which we carry our bodies, but it certainly is in the ways in which we move about our lives, which is a a lot too of what causes so much tension in society because because we are free to move about and we're free to allow our bodies to be wide and to be thin and to be tall and to be short. We run into a lot of trouble because that's how we get surveilled Mm -hmm. and that's how we are considered, our bodies are considered unruly Mm -hmm. because we won't just conform. We won't just stay inside the lines. Black people don't stay inside the lines. We live outside the lines. We live out loud, right? And we've always lived out loud. Our cultures prior to coming to this country were about ritual and dance that were free, not ritual that were confining. Mm -hmm. So we practice different religions. We practice different cultural expressions because even though we all come from within the continent of Africa, the ways in which we practiced our lives could have been a hundred different ethnic ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. I asked about the Obama administration's effect on food and
0: culture, specifically Mrs. Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, which involved the Chef's Move to Schools program that focused on healthful food options in schools. And this arose around the same time as a resurgence in interest in organic food and the locavore movement. And a year into the presidency, the First Lady cultivated the White House South Lawn into a seasonal garden, which she documented in her book, American Grown, the story of the White House kitchen garden and gardens across America. And Dr. Williams-Forson notes that this was an ambitious campaign, perhaps in hindsight, overly so, because fresh, homegrown, hyper-local food just didn't quite deliver a miracle cure to the nation, given how systemically marginalized the target populations were and still are. And especially, she says, Black folks, low-income people, and people who don't even
1: have access to healthcare. Well, I can eat the best diet and... Don't have adequate healthcare. And so my teeth are rotting Mm -hmm. or I can eat this diet and, you know, wake up in the morning and be shot in my house. If I'm a black person, or I can be out jogging and get hunted down by white supremacists, right? And killed. So yeah, food is not going to save us. And I think that was where the message went awry because it diverted our attention from larger, again, systemic issues. I mean, we should just be offering adequate health care to people in this country,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So to to make people feel like they're being bad citizens because they're not eating well, when the reality is all of these things go hand in hand, affordable health care, affordable housing, a living wage, access to various types of food, all of that goes hand in hand. It's not as if food is going to be the savior. And again, some of us are able to walk that fine line and and live really good lives and eat very well and all of that, you mm-hmm. know, but it's a small subset of the population because according to a study out of University of California Davis, the more income you have, actually, the more you spend eating out. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. And, and this is another one of those kinds of subterfuge things. You may not be eating McDonald's, Popeye's, Burger King, you know, all that, but you might be eating more Chick-fil-A or you may be eating a Cavo, or you may be eating at, I don't know, Ruth Chris or what have you. And so somehow that doesn't get seen as eating out. Mm. It gets seen as, no, no, I'm, I'm in a white tablecloth, fine dining establishment. I'm not eating out.
2: Right, <laughs> you know? right.
1: You know, there's a great book called Behind the Kitchen Door by Saru Dharaman. And she has a great video that goes along with it where she says, let's let's really look at how sustainable it is when you go to that sustainable eating establishment from the folks who are preparing your food to the people at the front of the house who are serving your food you're actually buying into their exploitation because while that you're drinking a hundred dollar bottle of wine ask yourself how much you know the folks who are doing the real work of picking the grapes etc are really getting paid mm-hmm. you know and so if you're only getting them you know a dollar a day or a dollar per bushel what have you how sustainable are you really being Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And so what's happening? Um, Our money is not keeping up with the, the prices of production, right? And so that's one reason why folks are like, well, just grow your own food. And here again, all of these things, and this is part of the beauty of studying material culture. It's all messy. There are no neat compartmentalized answers, right? Because growing your own food can be problematic for a lot of people. Again, you might have a, a plot somewhere not far from you, but you got to get there every day. And if you live in some place like where I do in Maryland, where the temperatures are always humid and hot, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so unusual. What are we going to do in August? What are we going to do in July? Mm-hmm. And I remember the time that I you know, was renting a plot of land. I just couldn't get there every day, multiple times a day mm-hmm. to water and to cultivate my plot. At the same time, I'm going to come back to black communities. We have always had to be inventive. We've always had to figure, what are we going to do if we don't have eggs? What are we going to substitute? Oil. What do we do if you don't have oil? You know, maybe fry some bacon and use the bacon grease. I mean, so, you know, again, this it comes back around full circle because a lot of us are going to perish, not because we're not growing our own food, but because there are lots of things going on that are affecting how we are living. But I say to people all the time who say, grow your own food. I say, we need people who can do different things. Some of us can harvest. Some of us can cook. Some of us can sell. Some of us can grow. Some of us know seeds. We need the collective to be at work here so that we can get through what's soon to be the apocalypse. And I'm not saying this from a doomsday conspiracy. I'm saying it from the reality. Um, You know, what, two decades ago, we saw a movie about the very thing we just experienced with the pandemic. Mm. So I think we all have to be prepared to be able to contribute to collectives
2: mm-hmm. in
1: order to be able to survive. I remember when uh, we were hit with the blizzard of 77 in Buffalo, New York, Ugh. my family was living up there, 76, I think it may have been 76, 77. How did we survive? with with snow all the way up to our doorsteps, right? Well, we came together with our friends in the community and everybody pulled whatever you had left on your shelves, in your refrigerators, and you came together and you you made it happen, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're going to be forced to return to a sort of collective way of living, Um, whether in family, fictive kin, real kin, we're going to have to come together to to figure it out because I don't think any of us are going to be able to do it alone.
0: Just this week, I saw a meme about how fracturing families generationally is a great way to make sure everyone needs to buy more stuff. So we move away from our families and then we go to work to afford childcare. To go to work and also to afford to take care of our parents that live on their own. And in the evolution of humans, the notion of everyone separating off to their own lands and then paying others to take care of loved ones is just a little bonkers. And I really think in the next few decades we'll return to some multi-generational housing or communal living or raising families with friends. Why does everyone on one street need to buy their own lawnmower that they use maybe an hour a week? I don't know, but it does sell lawnmowers. But right now, we're in a system that's expensive. It doesn't always leave us with time or resources to take care of ourselves or each other. And then we judge ourselves for not thriving within that judgmental system. So to feel better, we judge others instead of judging the
1: system. Here's what eating while black is all about, in part, Mm -hmm. other than looking at this through an anti-black racism lens. Let people be, (laughs) because people know what they have to do for themselves. And for their families. Mm -hmm. And so this goes back to the rigidity that you were asking me about, about the lack of spices. Let people spice their lives the way they have to and the way they want to. Mm -hmm. Right. And stop trying to tell people, well, you're a bad person if you don't do it this way or you're not, you're a good person if you do do it this way. And just, I just think the time for that level of judgment is way over and it's just unnecessary.
0: Right. And I think it's so wonderful that you focus on that in your book, that message of, you know, worry about yourself and stop policing what other people are eating or how they're eating. It feels like it must be partly too with internet culture with so many people feeling like they can pop in and say something in a comment that they wouldn't say to your face or That they have jurisdiction (laughs) over every single thing that they see. I imagine that that's probably changed a bit with the digital age too.
1: Yeah, well, we've become armchair experts, you know, um, behind the computer, where we feel like—I mean, we should weigh in on everything. And you know, and I say this to my daughter all the time. I just feel like I want to know less, and we see this (laughs) online all the time. I want to know less
2: about people's
1: lives. You know, I I do. I I don't. I don't want to know all of those things about (laughs) you, right? I don't want to know how you are you know managing in your private moments of whether that's using the restroom or what have you to a point but then on the other hand there's a certain level of of beauty about it because we are let inside people's private domains and so we do see where they conceive of their creative ideas of living and creative ideas of cooking and creative ideas of eating and it opens up for us some of those permissions that we were talking about around spices right mm-hmm. Okay, so and so is doing it. Let me just try it. You know, okay, now I feel like because I saw it on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, maybe I, I have the courage to do a thing. You know, it's okay. It's okay for us to be different and it's okay for us to be similar.
0: Can I ask you a few questions from listeners that knew you're coming on? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, yeah. And before we do, let's send a monetary snack toward a cause of the choosing. And this week, Dr. Williams-Forson would like to direct the donation to Cultivate Charlottesville, which engages with youth and community to build a healthy and just food system. And Cultivate Charlottesville grows gardens, they share food and power, and they advocate for just systems to create food equity. So you can find out more, or you can donate at cultivatecharlottesville.org, which is linked in the show notes alongside their Instagram, which you should follow. So that donation... from us is made possible by sponsors of the show what do you get for the mom who birthed you into the world i know a candle are you like no that's not quite enough how about memories that she'll love looking at every day or frames I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that a, it's not a candle, and also it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an Aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten Aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the code Ologies at check out to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Do you know what that means? It means I won't be making soup over a hot stove. I will be making factor because they are fresh, never frozen meals that are dietitian approved. They're ready to eat in just two minutes and watch out, they're delicious. I was like, are they really as good as people say? I have some neighbors. One of them's a nurse. One of them is a firefighter. And yes, they're both as attractive as they sound. They're like, yeah, we love factor meals. And I was like, I bet you do. You're gorgeous. Boom, tried them. I was like, these are delicious. <laughs> They're also good for days when I'm lazy. They have 35 different meals. You'll always have new flavors to explore. I have never had a factor meal that I've been like, nah. They've all been so good. Restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon and shrimp and blackened salmon. Also way more healthy and less expensive than takeout or ordering it. So there you go. Trust my hot neighbors. Head to factormeals.com ologies50 and use the code Ologies50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code Ologies50 at factormeals.com slash Ologies50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Bon appétit. You're welcome. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's peanut butter cups. It's really Reese's anything. But Reese's peanut butter cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's peanut butter cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's peanut butter cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay. I'm hungry for your queries. I thought Jacqueline Church and Bob Keeney both had great questions about barbecue. Mm -hmm. Jacqueline Church wants to know if we're in a renaissance at all with Michael Twitty and Stephen Satterfield and uh, Adrian Miller, all kind of raising the profile about roots and diversity. Um, Bob Keeney wanted to ask if you have a favorite barbecue area We'll get nomenclature right off the top.
1: Off the top, okay. So I'm not the barbecue expert. You name the ones who are the barbecue experts: Sudheer, <laughs> Adrian Miller. That is not at all my area of expertise. However, what I will say is that I think one of the beauties of those conversations is that it's it's giving us awareness that we had no idea about. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not really a big barbecue person, quite mm-hmm. frankly. <laughs> Um, partly because I don't eat pork. But see, that's what I'm talking about. You know, we can't make assumptions about people in their cultures. Not all Black folks eat barbecue. Now, for me, I call it grilling out, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. I don't call it picnic because picnic has a derogatory association with it in most Black communities, oh. true or not true. Oh,
2: I didn't know that.
1: Growing up, we so, oh, we were having a picnic or whatever. But it used to be that during when, when Black people were lynched, White folks would literally pack a basket and go out and and use it as spectacle and they would eat at these events and and use them for entertainment. So if you were to Google, you know, the derogatory or the definition of a picnic, you may may end up finding that. So it's different from um, barbecue, of course, being the reference to we're going to throw some ribs on the grill and we're going to barbecue and there's going to be a mustard sauce or a red sauce or a honey sauce or whatever.
0: I know you're not, you're not much of a barbecue person, but do you feel like there is a prevailing barbecue region in the U S is it Kansas
1: city? Is it who's, who's got it (laughs) for a long time? I think it was Kansas city Mm -hmm. because that's the one that we most knew about, Mm -hmm. but now we're hearing about North Carolina. We're hearing about South Carolina, Texas, Mm Texas,
0: And in the U.S., there are several styles of barbecue, so many, from Memphis, which is pretty pork-heavy and served wet with sauce or dry. There's Kansas City barbecue, it's smoked really slowly, it's served with sauce, and it includes bonus French fries. There's Carolina pork barbecue, where some say it all started, and that features more mustard-based sauce in Southern Carolina styles and Eastern North Carolina. But you pop on over to Central and Western North Carolina, and you're going to find what's called Lexington style, which involves more acidic, tomato vinegar, ketchup sauces. Texas has barbecue, but it leans toward beef and brisket cuts. And because Texas is the size of Mars, it has regional varieties for every corner of its dusty expanse. West Texas uses goat sometimes, and South Texas barbecue, sometimes called barbacoa for its West Indies etymology, that involves cow heads. And I know you want to know more history and gossip about these styles, but honestly, American barbecue could be its own episode, and a
1: seven-part one at that. I think that entire region is so rich with the various different methods and you know what I would love to see is just a huge barbecue festival where you have all these regions represented and you know and and just let folks go from one end of the of the field to the next just experiencing and tasting the differences and that's part of what I think we sometimes lose in the competition Mm. and and in the conversations over origins how about we just explore the differences so what do you use that you use differently, that this method works best for your region? This method doesn't work as well because your soil and your your area of clearance and your air is different. And so it's going to affect your taste. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that it, it really excite me is to get more. I hate origin stories. I hate them because I'm like, none of us are really there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> remember that, right? None of us were right. there four centuries ago. And, and we don't really know other than what we have in the written record. And sometimes when we as historians try to interpret the right written record, it's not always the best or the right interpretation.
0: Right. But whatever you singe over open flames, whether it's miso-soaked portobello caps, or a whole dang goat, what is the word for that gathering?
1: I tend to say grill out. I grew up in both Buffalo, but then also rural Virginia, and we will say, oh, we're going to grill out, we're going to cook out, mm-hmm. um, because you're cooking outside, or we're going to grill, we're going to grill some salmon on the grill, or what have you. There's a, a great phrase that that goes around, if, if you see, for example, I was watching a video this morning on TikTok, and a, a white woman was doing a dance, and, and you go straight to the comments, it's like, you're welcome to the cookout, <laughs> you know, because, because Black folks also since for at least for the last 40, 50 years, that I don't know, we've always said we're having a cookout, meaning we're cooking outside, you should come, there's going to be music, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a potluck. Most of the time potlucks refer to an indoor kind of activity where everyone brings a casserole or some kind of dish that we sit around and we do thus and so. Bottom line is it's about commensality. It's about the coming together of different people to enjoy what we hope is good food. Patrons Finley Mullen,
0: Bennett Gerber, and Marisa Asher wanted to know, in Finley's words, about having to clandestinely pass on recipes that had only been spoken and never written. Do you feel like that has influenced how Black American cuisine does kind of go by vibe and by rhythm and by flow and by smell and by taste instead of a quarter cup of cornstarch followed by a quarter of a tea. Like, do you feel like that there's an oral history
1: there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's oral history. And I should say that while we all, many of us cook by vibration, many of us are also equally classically trained to measure right? Because, you know, you can mess things up by not measuring. Mm-hmm. Many of an enslaved woman, man, boy, girl were killed because of inaccurate measurements, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you have to be sure that you get it just so or, or Mrs. or Master will do thus and so to you and that could end your life. And so we couldn't be carefree and footloose and fancy. Um, we oftentimes had to walk a very rigid, straight and narrow path in order to save our own lives, I think that's part of the beauty of Black culture and contributions to the culinary styles of the United States is that we've had to be adaptive, we've had to be flexible, we've had to be both rigid, but we could also, in our own homes, perhaps be less so. Yeah. And so that's what makes for how we help to build American cuisine and how we help to continue to build the culinary styles that we now enjoy in this country.
0: That's such a good contextual point. And it's so gutting and wrenching to think about the rigidity and the stakes, um, literally mm-hmm. life or death and that. And that's something that without having that experience or having that perspective or having a scholar like you point out might go completely over a person's head like it would mine. And yeah, you know, a little bit lighter note. Uh, a lot of listeners want to know. Looking at you, Bobby, Derek Allen, Catherine Wood, Jeannie Lewis, Pretty, and Aubrey Nelson. Uh, Taylor Wade, in their words, why is good mac and cheese so controversial? And what is the right (laughs) mac and cheese?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) You know, mac and cheese is so controversial. It goes back to what I was saying when um, I mentioned that my administrative assistant said, you know, mac and cheese is not black food. (laughs) You know, I was like, yeah, I know that. But it's a casserole, right? And really, what are we talking about here? noodles and cheese. Mm-hmm. Right. But it has been perfected over time and there's some really great if you google there's some really great articles on on the origins of mac and cheese and how it came to be associated with black culture. One great source for this
0: history is cookbook author and James Beard Foundation award recipient Jessica B Harris who wrote the book High on the Hog: A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. And if that title sounds familiar, it's because in 2021, Netflix released a four-part series based on the book. And you can head to episode three for the origins of macaroni and cheese, which have been attributed to James Hemings, who was an accomplished American-born chef, trained in France, who was also born enslaved and purchased at the age of eight by founding father, Thomas Jefferson. And he worked most of his short life at Jefferson's Monticello Plantation, or accompanying him to France. So you can thank him for bringing ice cream and french fries to America. And Jefferson agreed to free Hemings, but not until he was forced to train a replacement, which was his brother Peter. And James tragically died shortly thereafter at the age of 36 by suicide. So in that series High on the Hog, one of Hemming's descendants, Gail Jessup White, joins culinary historian Dr. Lenny Sorensen in the same kitchen in Monticello to cook James Hemming's macaroni pie, which boils the noodles in half milk and half water for a
1: really velvety texture. Macaroni and cheese, it's much more than meets the mouth. And so for a lot of us, Craft macaroni and cheese just doesn't cut it. It's 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 the way the noodles melt in your mouth. It's the way that the cheeses,
2: you know, um, come together. <laughs>
1: multiple come together with the with the cream, or do you put it on the stove ahead? You know what? I learn a lot of interesting new ways of cooking mac and cheese on TikTok. Oh. You know, I'm always fascinated to watch. If you just go to TikTok and type in mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. You'll get so many different versions of it. And it's amazing to watch because I'm like, huh, oh, I never thought about that. What I can tell you unequivocally mm-hmm. is that raisins do not belong in mac and cheese. <sighs> raisins don't belong in mini foods, <laughs> but certainly not in mac and cheese. And I've seen people do that. Your TikTok
0: inbox must be
1: chaos. <laughs> you must get
0: so many videos a day. You must get the same video sent to you from 10
1: different friends. <laughs> I do. I often get videos sent, and there's a great, you know, commentator on on TikTok, and she's also on Instagram and everything. She's like, everyone's so creative. Yes, you know? yes, yes. But you know, I, I mean, but the controversy around mac and cheese goes back to this conversation about barbecue and ownership. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're so caught up in owning food culture, and why is that? Because we don't want to share the fact that most of us come from cultures where foods were overlapping. When Black African people came to this country, we were brought here as chattel. We were brought here to work. We were brought here as labor, right? And we were perceived as less than human in that labor. If it were not for Native people, And African people, many of the white settlers would not have survived because we, you know, the perception was we understood the climate. We could withstand the climates, especially the hot areas in the South, Mm -hmm. deep South and so forth. But settlers came to this country and had no idea what foods they were confronting Mm -hmm. other than the ones that they brought. And so the fact that we have here many centuries later, people not wanting to just acknowledge, hey, This may have derived out of the Midwest, but guess what? It's been perfected over time, just like anything else. It's been perfected over time, and it tastes good, and I'm going to enjoy it. Instead, we want to lay claim to these origins. And those are the things that often also very much divide us, as opposed to just recognizing a good plate of mac and cheese, collard greens, and whatever fried other food you may have can make a really delicious meal. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And what about you personally? Best mac oh, and cheese best mac- you've ever had in your life.
1: <laughs> oh, I must say, my mom. You know, what am I going to say here? What do you think? I'm crazy. I'm going to say my mom. <laughs> Growing up, I mean, my mom made the best mac and cheese because it was gooey and you know it, it had a particular texture. And I grew up with watching her grate a huge slab of extra sharp cheddar cheese, which she had gotten from our local black-owned store by a man named Mister Coles. And you would go up to Mister Coles's and you say, "I need a." A huge thing and you show him by, I need a huge thing of cheese and he cut it in the, in the cheese wheel and, uh, he wrap it in paper and bring it home. And then my mom would grate it. And, and that memory at the time, it just seemed so pedestrian, right? But now to think back on it, I was like, wow, that was, you know, a lot of labor mm-hmm. in that, in that food that she was making. And it yielded a particular taste and it yielded a particular look. One that often, I'll be very honest with you, I cannot replicate.
2: Really? Because even
1: though I may, no, because I don't have access to that same kind of cheese, right? I don't have access to a cheese wheel. I'm, I'm getting cheese that's either pre-shredded because I'm like, oh, I'm going to be great cheese. <laughs> so I'm either getting shredded, a pre-shredded cheese, or I'm getting something in a block that's made by craft or some other creator, but it's not the cheese that you know, we used to get from Mr. Cole's store, and I really think that that affected the taste, mm-hmm. and it affects the way in which it is. It's now cooked. You know, she used to have this huge blue speckled pan with blue white speckled uh-huh. pan that you know the oh, oil yes. So she used to have one of those. Oh yeah, yes, she used to have that pan. The dish, and she, you know, yeah, the dish, of and she butter it up or oil it up, and she, you know, make her her mac and cheese, and and. I remember watching her do that and and fried chicken with a lot of garlic. And I talk about this in a couple of my essays and stuff and our collard greens, you know, that was often Sunday dinner, Mm -hmm. which ended up stretching to maybe Tuesday or Wednesday for a family of five. So, you know, those are the memories that I choose to to cling to and and then hopefully look on online and see what someone else is, is, is making that comes closest to it and then try to replicate it. But, I've not been able to, um, and I'm convinced that some of it has to do with the ingredients that I'm using. They're just not the same. Yeah, just sourced differently. Sourced differently, yeah. So access and and, and sourcing and and production. Yeah,
0: smaller dairies, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. different probably Mm -hmm. aging processes. All of that, yeah. Different preservatives, yeah. And and the Mm -hmm. longevity to get shipped all across the country to 1,500 different Walmarts versus five stores within a day's ride. That's, yeah.
1: That's right. That's right. But as mm-hmm. long as we're
0: on the debate, Jocelyn Taylor, Jenny mm-hmm. Lewis, Jennifer Mocken, uh all need to know, can we settle the debate mm-hmm. that sugar does not go on grits? <laughs> this is a big debate. I'm neutral on this, but sugar on grits. Is it salt and pepper or is it sugar? Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> Sorry. I
1: grew up with salt and pepper on grits, but I personally mm-hmm. prefer Salt and pepper with a little dash of sugar. Nice. I do like a dash of sugar and butter. But 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 my dad grew up. You know, he was a short cook, short line order cook for a while in New Jersey. So he was cooking at diners and stuff like that. You know, and so from him, we learned the different styles of eggs: sunny side up, you know, poached, hard boiled, all of that, right? And so with him, grits had to be salt and pepper,
2: right?
1: <laughs> It had to be salt. And there was something about the bitterness of it that just didn't quite rub me the right way. So I put a smidgen of sugar. So yes, I'll do both. I do a smidgen, just enough to take away some of that bitterness for me.
0: I think you just, every, everyone's satisfied with that answer. Yeah, and I everyone. think that it's
2: not
1: only scholarly, it's also,
2: <laughs> it's also very fair. Hey, I'm
1: no fool. Yeah. <laughs> but also, but you know what? Everybody's taste and everybody's palate is different. Mm-hmm. And, and that also goes back to my point about letting people be free mm-hmm. to, to eat and enjoy. I mean, we should be eating and enjoy. Right. right. Right? We should be eating and joy, And I think that we, again, put a lot of heavy lifting on food to do so many different things, to represent, to prevent, to characterize, to do so many different things that, you know, those poor greens aren't designed to do all of that, really. They just want to be, and they want you to just enjoy them in whatever way, whether that's smoked turkey, whether that's, you know, ham hocks, or whether that's, you know, vegetarian with liquid smoke, or or just no seasoning at all in some ways. Mm-hmm. We just should not be restricting people's ways of enjoying the one of the very few things in this life that could potentially give us joy.
0: Right. And... We were talking about things going mainstream and and TikTok and last listener question, but Rebecca Wofford wanted to know what your thoughts are on traditionally Black ingredients becoming more mainstream, and is it cultural appropriation or is it positive for sharing culture?
1: I'm curious about what she would define as Black ingredients.
0: They say, I've been seeing lots of oxtail on Twitter as part of this discussion, things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, oxtail, I think um, up until recently, really, I grew up knowing oxtail. I'll never forget my first time eating it. Actually, I was at a friend's house and her grandmother made it. And, you know, she's like, you want something to eat? It? Yeah, sugar, you can eat come on in and get some of this potato and stuff. So she never said what it was. And so I ate it. I was really enjoying it. She's like, now we're gonna tell you what it is. And you know, when she did it, I was like, okay, Well, still good, you know, but then for a long while, I I hadn't heard of oxtail again until I moved to the DMV and became familiar with Caribbean restaurants, right? This is mostly where we tend to see, and it's only been really in the last five years that because I've worked with some folks from the Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica and so forth, and they always ate oxtail. So then I, you know, I tried it. So, but here you go. This is what I said about the pros and cons of social media. Oxtail has now become familiar to a lot of people. And now folks are putting the recipes online. But we can't get mad when other people choose to to eat that and and try to replicate the dish. At the same time, what I think the the speaker is getting at is when we do that without saying, I got this recipe on TikTok from someone who was from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And this is the way they said to cook it. You know, or this is the recipe, because when you don't offer those attributions, then you are sort of saying, oh, this is my invention. This is my creation. Now, you can always say I'm going to modify their recipe because I don't like it as spicy. All of that is fine. But yeah, why not? Why don't we say, you know, this is a typical dish eaten in the Caribbean? I'll tell you something else about oxtail. A lot of times you'll see online oxtails. And then there was a person from the Caribbean who said it's oxtail not more than one it's just one it's just cut into different pieces Mm. so just even in that you know learning this bit of culture um you want to attribute that type of learning to the culture that has given you that taste and that has given you those recipes from which it is known that's just like saying oh yeah you know egg rolls I made those I even know tamales or you know uh, they're mine to what end? Why not say that I got this from a community of people who are Mexican or a community of people who are Asian American or, or whatever, yeah. kimchi? Yeah. You know, you didn't invent that. So I'm just going to do my best to create this Korean dish. Yeah. What's wrong with that? And the last questions I always wrap up with
0: is, shorter, long as you like, but uh, the hardest thing about your job or this field, the, the most challenging thing, even, even if it's a petty annoyance, it could be anything.
1: Origins is the hardest. Mm. You know, that's why I tend to stay away from them. Um, I try not to get drawn into conversations where I'm having to, well, where did it come from? This is what I know on the basis of the research that I've done and the people I've talked to and the, and the oral histories that I've looked at and the primary sources that I've dug up. But I honestly, before that, don't really know, mm-hmm. you know, because, again, I, I was half joking when I said none of us were there, but that's a reality. None of us were. And so when we think about how long the earth has been in existence and how things and people and substances and materials move, we do our best to try and recreate their origins. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But we don't really know. And, And you have to ask yourself, what's your investment in establishing that? I try to help people have different ways of talking about food. Be daring, be willing, just like with spices, be willing to try a different conversation and say, you know, this is another way of thinking about it.
0: And what about your favorite thing, favorite dish, favorite element of your job?
1: Favorite element of my job. I love learning these new stories. I love this book by Waverly Root, which I have had on my shelf forever, but to find out about just all of the, the lobster and crab that used to be considered, what is now a delicacy, used to be like plentiful and cheap. I love reading what other people have written and, and enjoying what they have written. That's the favorite part of my job. And the favorite food, collard greens. <laughs> love cooking collard greens. That's my favorite. I grew up on it. I, I like it. I, I've perfected how I cook them, and, and I cook them different ways at different times. It just depends on what I have a taste for.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, back to the sugar thing, Sometimes I put a little sugar in there. Sometimes I don't. It depends on, you know, how I how I want what taste I want at that time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think those are the best parts of my job. I love this work. I like the discoveries, and I especially love learning more and more about how Black people have lived, continue to live, and will live in the future in this world that we inhabit and with the foods in which we eat. Well, I'm glad that you're
0: doing research that you love and making it accessible to people. And I hope when you go over to people's houses for dinner, they don't get too nervous because it's like a cultural critic of food.
1: (laughs) Better be good. They're okay. (laughs) Better be good. Sometimes it can get a little dicey, but I'm like, you're okay. There's no. uh, As as one of my former students, Dr. Jessica Walker said, there's no. There's no pumpkin gate going on here because she brought, wanted to bring pumpkin pie versus sweet potato pie. To <laughs> a There's no pumpkin gate. I'm, I'm, I'm open to it all. And, but I do tend to live my life through a lens of, of watching food stories and food issues unfold. So it's fun stuff. So
0: ask brilliant people basic questions because the answers are so complex and might change the way you see everything on your plate and the world. So thank you to Dr. Psyche williams Forsen for being on the show. Her website is PsycheWilliamsForson.com and her social media handles are linked in the show notes alongside Cultivate Charlottesville and the webpage for this episode, which has so many more links. And we're at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward on both, Allie with one L. Smologies are shorter, classroom-friendly episodes in which I don't curse. And those are up for free at Ologies.com or AllieWard.com slash Smologies. Thank you, Zeke Rodriguez Thomas, and Mercedes Maitland for editing those. Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for adminning the Ologies Podcast Facebook group with assists from Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis. Thank you to Noelle Dilworth for doing all of our scheduling. Birthday girl, Susan Hale who will be mad at me for telling you it's her birthday. She handles merch at ologiesmerch.com and so, so, so much more. I don't know how we do the show without you. Thank you for being bored. Emily White of The Wordery does our professional transcripts and those are linked for free in the show notes. Kelly Ardwyer works on the website and assistant editors are Mark David Christensen, who has a dog that looks a lot like mine, and Jarrett Sleeper, who shares my dog because he is also legally wet to me. Lead editor is the wonderful Mercedes Maitland of Maitland Audio of Canada. Nick Thorburn made the theme music. And if you stick around to the end of the show, I'll tell you a secret. And this week, it's that our audio booth that we use most of the time is built into a closet that also has all my clothes. And this weekend, it slowly collapsed at like 11 o'clock at night. And it sounded exactly like a person hiding in the closet. And I grabbed the aforementioned dog. I left the house, not even wearing shoes, in pajamas, no bra, until I had some backup arrived and I found out it was just a faulty closet shelf. And I'm hoping that I used up all the cortisol that my body is ever going to make. And I'll just don't have any more. So I'm never going to be anxious again. Who knows? Okay, bye-bye. Hackadermatology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology,
1: is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also
2: listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a
0: mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.